Welcome to Off Kilter, a podcast about the fight for economic liberation and what it will take to set us all free. Powered by the Century Foundation, I'm Rebecca Vallis, and I'm a former legal aid lawyer turned policy advocate who works with public policy and law, as well as organizing, coalition building, and narrative as tools for building a more just society. One premised on collective consciousness of our common humanity and the inherent dignity and rights that come with being human. Every week, I talk with vision leaders working to disrupt the off-kilter imbalance of power in the U.S. to build a society where everyone can thrive and experience the shared abundance we all deserve. And as we continue Off-Kilter's series of conversations digging into why, in the famous words of Audre Lorde, self-care is political warfare, I am incredibly excited to share this next episode with you all, taking a deep dive into the movement to embed diversity, equity, and inclusion into workplaces across the U.S. and how DEI, as it's often called, fits into a broader conversation about radical self-care. DEI has become something of a buzzword in the U.S. in recent years, with more and more employers, particularly within progressive spaces, taking steps to incorporate DEI practices into their workplaces to better enable them to walk the walk when it comes to living their organizational values. Quick side note, as DEI has taken hold as a North Star in more and more workplaces, it has also evolved to add another letter and dimension to the acronym, becoming DEIA, which with A representing accessibility for disabled people. And that's how we'll be exploring it in this episode. But just like with so many conversations about self-care, DEIA efforts are frequently contemplated solely at a surface level, relegated to a training employees have to go to or a survey everyone has to take, after which everyone moves on and checks the box without thinking too deeply about what it's all about. So that's why I love getting to sit down with my dear friend, Leilani Manulu, who's a DEIA expert and facilitator to go beneath the surface and explore why the movement to embed DEIA into our workplaces, including and especially within organizations working towards social justice, is core to radical self-care. After we talked DEIA, Leilani and I spent the second half of the episode delving into another critical component of radical self-care that she is also a deep expert on, and that's intuition, and how tuning into and listening to one's intuition shows up as a self-care practice. Her credentials when it comes to intuition? Well, in addition to working as a DEIA facilitator, Leilani is also a practicing intuitive and shaman, which is actually how we first crossed paths. Now, since intuition isn't a subject that's allowed to creep into public policy and political conversations all that often, at least in modern times. As someone who spent decades as a deep skeptic myself, I feel the need to say to the skeptics out there, I'd urge you to tell your left brain to take a hike for just a sec and stick around for the whole conversation, even and especially if you're wondering whether it's for you. You just might be surprised. And without further ado, let's go to my conversation with Leilani. Leilani, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. This is super exciting to get to have this conversation on the air since you've been, um, I've been having a lot of fun getting to know you off the air. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I am possibly more excited than you for this conversation because in some ways this is, this is going to be, in some ways this is going to be kind of a a standard business off-kilter episode in some ways it's really not and like in the best ways so I, I sort of said that up top in the intro but I'm, I'm really excited for all parts of this conversation so 
In some ways, I think it's fair to say that you are a little bit of a different type of guest than I have usually had <laughs> on this podcast. You're not only someone who has worked as a uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion um, speaker, facilitator, consultant, supporting um, all types of organizations and, and corporations and in incorporating um, that type of, of um, practice into their work, but you're also, you're an intuitive leadership expert. You're a practicing shaman, among other things, as we were talking about before we got rolling. You, you really kind of defy being put into one um, into one label or box. And um, as I've been coming out of the broom closet a little bit more myself on this podcast and in various professional spaces um, as a practicing astrologer, among other various woo disciplines, and I'm sure we're going to get into that later in this conversation, um, it, it feels right to start this conversation by mentioning that it's actually the latter, the, the you as a practicing shaman. Um, piece that is how we actually met through a mutual friend who is a really, really, really gifted energy healer. So um, I want to give you the chance to kick off and introduce yourself a little bit um, uh, for Off Kilter's listeners. Sure. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And first and foremost, I just want to commend you and your just support team and everyone because shifting and, and having these conversations about intuition in places that are not where it's not so conventional to do so. I, I just want to commend you all because it takes a tremendous amount of courage and just willingness to stand up and be visible as our whole selves. So first and foremost, thank you for having this conversation. Thank you for bringing me on. Um, I've heard that many times that, you know, I'm not the traditional guest. <laughs> I've, I've appeared on many podcasts at this point, And a lot of times they're like, you're just different than who we usually bring on. But I, I do attribute that to a lot of the ways that I've moved through my professional and personal life just over the years. So I'll just introduce myself a little bit. I, I started out in corporate. So I came from the aerospace industry. I My undergrad is in accounting. My my graduate degree is in leadership development. It's, I have an MBA in leadership development. And so I came from a very like <laughs> buttoned up corporate background. I have... Um, you know, I've always gotten the messaging that a stable career with like stable income was like the dream, the American dream. I come from a family of immigrants. And so this, this very like corporate buttoned up life was the, you know, I was making everybody proud. And about, gosh, a decade ago, I started teaching emotional intelligence and, and really getting into the emotions of the work that I was doing. So I was leading a lot of uh, corporate leaders, executives, um, through leadership development programs and coaching and, and things like that at a very reputable and large aerospace company. And I started getting into the emotional side of it and really understanding like, what does it mean to be a whole human as leaders, as, you know, as people who are in charge of that, that have the charge of ensuring that people in these workspaces are feeling safe and secure and all of that. And so through that emotional intelligence channel, I started learning more about diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and really understanding that we are really lacking in a lot of ways in mainstream, you know, um, US centric culture, professional culture, quote unquote, professional culture was really failing a lot of people who were kind of left on the margins. And so uh, so I dedicated a big part of my career to to bettering that. Um, I got called into a lot of hiring processes and programs to ensure that we were thinking about things from a more inclusive and more equitable lens. 
and over time <laughs> started tapping into this deep knowing within myself that I had known my entire life, um, that I was deeply tuned into the universe, tuned into intuition. I've been channeling since I was a child without really knowing that's what I was doing. Um, and when I say channeling, I mean, channeling messages from the unseen. And so that cracked open. I mean, it was something that I had been doing pretty consistently over the last 10 years or so. And then when George Floyd was murdered, um, it really, really cracked open. And I, I noticed a shift in our human collective that was going toward a place of courage, a place of um, transformation. We were all shifting together. Um, and that was when I had to really start honoring the call of my spirit, my soul, and continue to do the work that I was doing professionally while also pivoting into something that was more holistic, more healing. And that's when I decided to quit my corporate job and pursue shamanism. And now I'm in a place where I'm balancing both of those lenses, both of those hats and supporting leaders and entrepreneurs and um, just intuitives really around connecting to the call of their spirit in order to bring our world forward, to bring our human collective forward. So I think that's, if you can believe it, that's the condensed version <laughs> of my path and who I am and continue to, to do that work. I've published a book. I've, I have a podcast. I am trying to make myself as visible as possible to be of the most support as possible in this world. Well, and Leilani, thank you so much for, for sharing all of that. And, and um, I do believe that it's the condensed version because I happen to know some of the longer version. But I also, it's it's funny because when you and I were brainstorming around how to structure this episode, we sort of were thinking, okay, well, the first half is, is talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion and your work there. And then the second half is intuition. But I, I in, in, in a lot of ways, I don't know that the two are going to be separable throughout this conversation. So I kind of want to throw out the separation yeah. and, and, and the boundary there and say, nope, it's all it's all linked because as mm -hmm. you were just describing your own path right it was actually getting back in touch with tuning into your intuition that helped you to make some of the shifts in in your career path that you were just describing so um, I feel like before we get too much farther we, we probably need to do a little bit of um, definitional work and one of the terms you just used is one I want to I want to start with and so let's just do a quick little sidebar and and um, emotional intelligence what is emotional intelligence mm. for anyone who's like I don't know what that is I know about other kinds yeah well there's so there's so much content now I mean emotional intelligence was really um became really mainstream in the 90s Daniel Goleman is kind of like the rock star of emotional intelligence so pretty much anything that he writes he's kind of become an authority on emotional intelligence and in kind of in a roundabout way, Brene Brown as well in the work that she does. But at the end of the day, all that emotional intelligence is, is really understanding the, the four parts of emotional intelligence. So there's self-awareness, uh, self-management, there's social awareness, and then relationship management. And emotional intelligence really just means at the best that we can, given our strengths in emotional intelligence, mastery of those parts. So am I aware of what's happening emotionally within myself? Am I able to manage that in a way um, where I'm honoring that awareness when I'm bringing that externally? And then with the social awareness, am I am I empathic? Am I picking up on the emotions of others? And how am I managing relationships with that information? So emotional intelligence really is just about understanding who we are, who we are in the world, our, our place in our social circles. How do we manage the emotions of others without sacrificing my own experience? 
Um, so that that's really kind of in a, a short version, what emotional intelligence is. And it's a really powerful tool really for everybody that I support, but especially for leaders, because if leaders are not aware of the ways that their emotions are playing into the ways that they are leading, the ways that they are engaging with employees, especially those who are historically marginalized and minoritized, um, it can be really harmful. Um, we, you know, the ways that I coach leaders is really to do it from a place of um, to, to lead, to help them lead from a place where they're doing no harm. And if we're not actively centering um, how our emotions are showing up in the ways that we behave in our positions of power, then, then we are doing harm, whether or not we're intending to. So, yeah. I can't think of a better way to kick off this, this conversation because we're going to end up pulling on so many of the threads that you've just started to weave together. So um, I, I want to stay with a little bit of um, definitional work here and, 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 um, and, and start by laying some of the foundation for talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I, I want to also just note that in the disability rights and justice circles that I frequently move in, um, this, is, this is sometimes called DEIA with the A standing for for accessibility. So um, DEI or DEIA, depending on what people call it, has become something of a buzzword in, in recent years. It gets talked about actually a lot, um, at least in, in progressive spaces, which is a great thing in certain regards, although sometimes the it's kind of a superficial or a check-the-box um, uh, invocation that it gets. So for folks who might be familiar with the term, but who aren't really sure what does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean in practice, how would you explain what this DEI, DEI or DEIA thing is all about? Yeah. So you did a great job of spelling it out. I think that's the first part. It's like, let's make sure that we're on the same page about the acronyms. And without necessarily going into detail with each and every acronym, I'm actually going to do something a little different. I'm just going to talk to you about what DEIA means to me when, when I engage with people, with, with organizations, with individuals. Um, so for me, DEIA really just means belonging like at the end of the day is, do I belong to myself? Do I belong to this organization? Do I belong to my team? And how do we as individuals, whether we're in positions of power or not, quote unquote, not because technically we all have power, but if we're in formal positions of power, um, how are we ensuring that people experience a sense of belonging wherever we are? And that sounds simple. It's incredibly not simple and it's incredibly nuanced, right? So when we think about belonging, well, what does belonging actually mean? That's means that's going to be different for every single person. And so really the, the difficulty of this work is that we have to be able and willing to see each and every person as a unique individual with a unique experience, with a unique, you know, background, family of origin, um, you know, different relationships to immigration, things like that. So, so that we can create spaces and, and places and gatherings and teams where people feel as though I truly belong here. And that's difficult. That can be really difficult, especially when that's not historically how we have approached work. It, work has been about productivity. It's been about profit. Historically, it's been about like, what can we produce? And the call that so many of us are feeling these days, especially as, you know, black and brown folks, as, as women, as folks, myself, I'm invisibly disabled. I I'm a queer brown woman. It's like, for those of us who are navigating these spaces, um, how, how are we engaging? How are we calling forward 
you know, our own sense of sovereignty and and ensuring that we're standing in a place of power in the ways that we're engaging with our own belonging and also calling forward leaders and organizations to create spaces where that's possible as well. I, I truly personally believe that DEIA is everybody's responsibility and yet historically it's fallen on you know, mar- historically marginalized and minoritized communities to to call that forward. And so I, as a, as a brown woman and, and really understanding the privilege that comes with that, I, I do everything I can to create safe spaces for, for black folks, for um, people who are visibly disabled. Like, so, so I understand my privilege within that spectrum and, and I try to create spaces of belonging every single place that I go and, and every space that I enter. Even just starting this conversation by by invoking the word belonging, I have to say that might be one of my absolute favorite um, explanations of what 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 usually is described as an acronym um, means in in practice. So thank you for grounding us in um, really in something that's values based and something that people can feel in their in their hearts. Um, how in your in your um, understanding of it, how in your experience, and you started to get into this, but I want to I want to put a finer point on it. How does this work? Diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility. How does it fit into a conversation about radical self care, which is the overarching theme of, of this season's um, conversations. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and I, I, another way of maybe asking that question might be like, how does DEIA support self-care in the workplace? Or by contrast, how does an employment environment that lacks an intentional awareness or an intentional um, uh, North Star of DEIA do harm to self-care in the workplace? And you, I, I realize wow. you've, got, you've got personal experience here. You might also have anecdotes from um, working on these issues over the years. So take that anywhere you want to go. Oh my gosh. That's such a good question. I actually, I recently did a podcast conversation on uh, the conscious cut and we, we talked about, so I'll start here, I suppose, um, what it means to have self-care from like a DEI space as a woman who identifies as a minority, as you know, in, in the historically marginalized, uh, community. And so for me and what I said to these women as well is that as uh, black and brown folks who now, and many of us, and, and not just, you know, black and brown folks, disabled folks, queer folks, like so many of us who identify in these ways, um, we're now in, in organizations and spaces that are saying, come as your whole self, right? Like they, they're they really, really trying, I think. I, I do believe that most organizations have good intentions around this. And yet at the end of the day, a lot of times, again, the burden for a lot of these changes to become more inclusive, to become more of a place of belonging, tends to fall on people who are historically minoritized and marginalized. And so what I would say to those folks is, whatever that looks and feels like to you to take care of yourself, do that. <laughs> Especially because so much of this burden has has fallen on, on many of us over the years and over our lifetime, really. And so, you know, I think that there's, and and this is why, honestly, so I used to be a consultant full-time doing DEIA work and I had to step away from it it, for my own self-care because it was, it's, it's, it can be so draining at times to be the one who is experiencing a lot of this harm while also trying to fix the harm um, within organizations, within leaders, et cetera. And so first and foremost, I would say, listen to your body. If, if you do identify as any type, whether you're a woman, whether you're like, if you identify as, as 
historically marginalized or, or minoritized in any way, what is your body telling you? Right. So, so what I had to realize myself, what I had to kind of reckon with was I was very proud of the work that I was doing in this space. I feel like we made tons of strides in my organization that I was leading, um, doing this work. And yet I would wake up with anxiety attacks. I would wake up thinking that, um, or just feeling in my body that, you know, this fight or flight mode, because I had to do a workshop with, with mostly white folks who, who weren't quite understanding or didn't really welcome me into that space. Right. So I would say, and this, and this goes for any kind of radical self-care um, is what is my body telling me? We, we undervalue and we under, I don't know, like underestimate the wisdom of, of our bodies. Right. And we, especially those, I mean, this is so prevalent within like women that I've worked with too, for survival, we have had to disassociate from the the parts of our bodies that are ringing alarms, right? In order for us to move forward at work, whether that's at work, whether it's in personal rela relationships, whatever, we have navigated so much trauma that our bodies have gotten into a survival mode where a lot of times we can't even connect with our bodily emotions or our, our sensations, whatever. And so I would say the first step of radical self-care all always will be to breathe, to find stillness, to, to begin to connect with our bodies. And that can mean sensually too. I mean, I'm a, I'm a survivor of childhood trauma and there were a lot of times where I couldn't connect like to my own sensuality for survival and for, um, safety. And so that would be like my first like, and, and ensure that you have a therapist or whatever kind of support that you need to do that. So that that's kind of my, that would be my first steps for people who identify as historically marginalized, minoritized. And so the other side of that is how do we, how do those in the dominant group? And again, like I do identify, like I have, I understand I have privilege. So as that part of me, how do I practice radical self-care? It's, those of us who are kind of torchbearers who are driving this. And I know Rebecca, you're one of them. It's like who, who are, who identify in some ways in the dominant group, but are, are kind of driving this forward. You also need self-care. Like you also need to take care of yourself because kind of in the same vein of like, do no harm. Um, I, I had a really wonderful workshop that I attended recently, uh, Laura Vandernoot Lipsky, who wrote Trauma Stewardship. And her entire workshop was to like therapists and uh, basically those in helping professions. And she was like, you cannot do good work if you are burnt out, period. So what does it look like for you who are, who are doing this work, who are doing good, good work? Um, what does it look like for you to take care of yourself? Because as much as you want to have positive impact, you cannot do so from a place of depletion. It's just, it's not possible. And regardless of your intentions, regardless of how, like how much you can run on E on empty, you, you just cannot do your best work if you're, if you're doing that from a place of depletion. So what does that look like for you to begin to, again, listen to your body to understand, okay, what does it look like for me to fill myself back up? And that work, that really tough, important work is going to be there tomorrow. It's never going to stop. I mean, not anytime soon. And so what does it look like today for me to pause, to, go walk in the woods to take a long bath. It's not selfish. It's necessary. It's necessary for us to, to all work together to, to first take care of ourselves in order to take care of like the very important work that we have ahead of us. 
Yeah, I love all of that. And I want to come back to the being in the body piece, because that's that's going to be a perfect segue into talking a little bit about intuition in a deeper way. And um, it's also a, a very big piece of my own personal journey. So we'll we'll put a pin in the body piece and come back to that. But um, I, I want to stick I want to stick with this DEIA piece for just one minute longer and, and say that, um, you know, part of what we have been trying to do with this series of conversations for Off Kilter around radical self-care is we've been trying to bridge the what is the stuff that people as individuals can do, quote unquote, should do, might be able to learn from each other when it comes to radical self-care. And then some of what we've also been talking about, and so this is where it's been sort of a bridge, is like, what are the collective structures and systems and policies and ways of doing things that need to be changed and fixed and which are frankly making us all sick um, and and in the name of radical self-care need to be examined and interrogated with fresh eyes now that this concept of self-care has become such a buzzword, although usually pretty superficially. So just thinking about that sort of structural level and, and again, staying with the category of folks who maybe are in positions of power, maybe the organizational leaders who are... Um, saying, okay, we've got to do a DEIA process for my organization. How would you... Um how would you connect that type of process, that type of um, of thinking, um, that that type of, of North Star within an organization's um, attempt to live its own values to a, a broader conversation about radical self-care more at the macro level? Oh, man, you have such good questions, Rebecca. Um, I mean, so the first place that my mind goes is accessibility, honestly. So when we talk about structures and, and what's in place, the first thing that we need to really consider is that from a mental health perspective, I think we are in, I mean, maybe not the biggest crisis we've ever experienced in terms of mental health, but maybe just the most spotlight that we've ever had. And so what I would say to organizational leaders is what are you doing? Not, not to expect employees to come forward with their accessibility needs, but what are you doing to say, Hey, here, we understand that accessibility is really important. And, um, here are some like options for instance. So personally, so I said, I'm invisibly, invisibly disabled. I struggle with anxiety and depression and I have my entire life. And so what I think that organizationally, what would have supported me when I was in, you know, formal like organizations would be to, to really have leaders and have systems in place that would acknowledge that part of me as a whole human before I had to disclose. So I did disclose it at times because I had to, because um, when I was working through my pregnancy, I had postpartum depression. I could not um, function in the same ways that, that I had. I, I basically kind of put aside these parts of me that would had struggled my entire career. Um, and I got to a point where I was like, I can no longer, I can no longer do my work. I had an anxiety attack in the middle of like an event that I was putting on for, for executives. And I, I had to bring it forward. What if organizations had systems in place that, that would support that before it became a crisis? Right. And so what I would call organizations forward to begin to consider is partnering and hiring consultants um, from the disability space um, and, and like all DEIA consultants. Right. But but especially folks from the disability space, because that I think is one of the 
easiest, I don't know if that's the best word, but like maybe one of the easiest ways to begin to question the structures that we put in place for years and years and years that have completely just disregarded the the needs. And, and to be clear, like every single person in some way, shape or form in their lifetime will have some sort of accessibility need period. Like whether it's early in life, whether it's later in life, whether it has to do with mental health, whether it's temporary disability, whether it's pregnancy. I mean, we, we all will have, will will have to deal with this. So what better way to do that than to begin to bring people into your organization to, to really help you reckon with where have we been really ableist in the ways that we've been engaging with our, our community, with our employees, and how can we begin to rectify that? How can we begin to make the, these places safer and more, again, more welcoming, more of a sense of belonging for, for everybody that every single stakeholder that we engage with. Yeah. yeah, I love that. I love that. And um, it's mm-hmm. a conversation we have a lot on the show, right? Every issue ends up being a disability issue because it isn't mm-hmm. just one in four Americans who live with disabilities. It is something that most of us will experience at some point in our lives. And um, uh, particularly uh, folks who haven't experienced disability earlier in life, uh, they'll almost certainly experience it later in life, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's not it's not an us and a them. But, you know, part of what was coming through for me as you were saying that was also just that, you know, there's a, there's a notion called universal design, right? The idea that when, um, so like people are probably familiar with curb cuts as uh, an accessibility mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, tool, and it allows people who are in, say, wheelchairs to move onto a sidewalk, right, as opposed to hitting on the curb. Um, that's something that younger folks might not remember a time before, but they're, most of American history is before we had curb cuts. But that's something that ends up being helpful to a lot of different types of people for a lot of different reasons, whether it's people who are on bikes or people pushing strollers or, you know, and, and, and. And so it, that's just a, a very facile example of how um, leading with thinking about accessibility can actually be good for everyone. And and as you were describing, right, some of the things that end up creating a more accessible workplace um, for people with disabilities, including people with invisible disabilities like um, uh, anxiety, like depression, as, as you named, and both things that I have experienced at different points in my life as well, um, what you end up with is a workplace that's better for everybody, that's healthier for everybody, exactly. and that also is less likely to create the kind of burnout factory that we now understand is so pervasive, even among well-intentioned organizations um, mm-hmm. across the the social justice um, sector, right? And so that that was some of what was um, coming up for me as as you were saying that. But um, but Leilani, I want to get into, I want to get back to the getting in the body piece that you started to bring up, and and that'll take us to the intuition side of the conversation. So um, you mentioned up top, in addition to working on DEIA issues for for many years, you are also a practicing shaman in addition to being um, an intuitive leadership expert. Um, And um, part of how I like to describe my own um, connection to this world is I I describe myself as a scholar of magic. Um, uh, Some people might call it the mystical. Some people might call it woo. Um, And and to be fair, this actually, as I said up top, this is not entirely switching gears from talking about um, uh, DEIA in in a lot of ways. So I, but I am excited to sort of spend the balance of our time talking a little bit about um, this this intuition piece because it it rarely comes up. It's rarely a safe topic. I'm putting safe in scare quotes to talk about in political or public policy or even really most corporate and professional spaces at this point in in, um, kind of modern times. And so let's get back into doing some definitional work um, and define what we mean by intuition. Um, Folks, I'm going to guess, I'm just going to go ahead and and see some of the 
eye rolls. Some people who are off kilter's usual listeners might be going, intuition, what is this? Why are they going into this woo stuff? Um, so let's let's kind of ground this before we, we get too far into this conversation. Intuition is something that gets talked about a lot, but it can mean a lot of different things to different people. So what does intuition mean to you? How does it show up in your life? Um, start us off there. Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Let me describe like just the most important thing in my life and work right now. Um, intuition, it's, it's such a broad topic, but I'll, I'll start with, you know, the definition of intuition is really, it's the ability to understand something immediately without the need for conscious reasoning. That that's really all intuition means is like, can we, can we gather information, gather data without needing it to be quote unquote logical, without needing it to have some kind of like rooting in what we describe as like quote unquote evidence. I do all of this in quotes because it's just the way that we've been conditioned as a culture, as a world is, is, is to really value the seen over the unseen. Right. And so my entire kind of my shtick <laughs> is to en- empower organizations, empower individuals, especially empower leaders to begin to consider that there is more evidence, there's more data, there's more information to be gathered and to be considered as we're making super important decisions that that impact everything, right? That impact our, our policies, our, our structures, our organizations, like the ways that we that we move about the world and the ways that we move forward as a collective, can can we begin to entertain the idea that data that is unseen, quote unquote unseen, is also something we should be considering? That's it. That's it. So really what I support leaders around is to help them connect with their inner knowing, which is all that intuition is, is like, this is my inner knowing, is helping them connect with that so that they can have decisions that are balanced. Because over time, you know, centuries upon centuries and thousands of years that have gone by, we have really gotten to a place where we're valuing logic and reasoning and, and what is quote unquote seen as, as the authority. And, and yet what, what I know and what I'm feeling in this moment as I'm like connecting with my own intuition is like there, that is very like the, the divine masculine and, and to the point now where we are so imbalanced in the masculine that it's become toxic. So what can we do to begin to bring that divine feminine back into balance, which divine feminine, all that really means is like emotions. It's, it's, it's really valuing the unseen. It's, it's, what are we, what, what are we placing on, you know, what importance, what, what importance are we placing on the earth and what the earth produces and, and the cycles versus like linear time. And so there's, there's this, there's this need and calling that's bringing us to a place of requiring that balance and intuition, our individual intuition is the way for us to begin to navigate that. So what could our world look like if leaders were actually, you know, not just looking at the facts and data that, that we know, and and that we've become accustomed to measuring. What if we also said, Hey, I see all of this on paper. And yet my intuition is saying this isn't the way to go. Right. And, and having a conversation from that. So what does your intuition say? What does your intuition say? And can we begin to make decisions that are more balanced in the divine feminine over time? And that I believe, and that's what's been communicated to me because I am a spiritual medium. It's like that, that is what will kind of restore our world. And we see the ways that the old way of thinking, the old way of being where we're really, you know, prioritizing these, these 
more masculine traits of, of decision-making where that's just failing. It's, it's not working anymore. Not, and there's, there's actually like a question, was it ever working or were we just in a place of oppression and like silencing, um, that, that was keeping it kind of (laughs) moving forward, even though truly we've been perhaps moving backwards. So I, that that's where, where my mind goes, but I'm curious, Rebecca, what is coming up for you in this conversation? Yeah. Oh God, there's so many places we could take this. And I'm so glad we have a little bit of time to spend on this piece because this is not, as I said, this is not your standard off kilter episode, but it it feels like it sort of should be. Um, It feels like this is the medicine that a lot of people need right now. So let's, let's go for it. So, um, all right. I love, I love where you kicked off. I love where you started us in terms of um, getting a feel for what, what intuition means. Um, And without this, being like a textbook definition, I'll I'll bring in I'll bring in what maybe feels a little more sciencey to folks who are on the edge, going like I don't know that feels really woo to me. And so like let me bring up the brain. So this might be a helpful framework for folks thinking about well what is intuition versus what is that logical rational reasoning mind that you were talking about. Well, folks are probably familiar with the fact that we have the quote unquote left brain and the quote unquote right brain, and that vastly oversimplifies how our brain works. But it is kind of a helpful framework for thinking about the different. Um, ways that we access and and, um, bring in information from our environment and from other sources. Um, And so the left brain is the part that people are probably a lot more familiar with. What does that feel like? What does that do? Um, In fact, uh, today's Western culture pretty much puts the left brain on a pedestal, right? Along with the predominant post-enlightenment, atheistic, materialistic worldview that you were describing that almost entirely eschews anything that can't be seen or measured by modern science as, quote, not real. So left brain, left brain, powerful tool for um, doing things like solving puzzles, for figuring something out, for creating a plan, for um, putting a, a grid together, right? Left brain, learning language, left brain, very, very powerful, really, really helpful tool. The right brain is where the intuition that you were talking about um, comes through. Um, and it's it's also, and this is a helpful distinction, an important distinction between the left brain and the right brain and the ways that they function, the right brain is really good at having the bigger picture, at thinking holistically, at being able to see how everything fits together. And so in a lot of ways, and this is, I'm oversimplifying like a lot of, you know, many, many decades of psychological literature here as the um, you know psychology college major who uh, knows enough to be conversant in this stuff to some extent, but is is um, uh, not uh, looking for anyone to cite me in how I'm describing this um, scientifically, but just just for purposes of this conversation, the the way that experts in the way that our brain works, the way that the human brain works, um, say that theoretically we would be at our best as humans when it comes to our mental functioning and acuity would be if the right brain was in charge and the left brain could kind of work for the right brain as a tool because it's the right brain that has that bigger picture. And connecting this to some of what you were just describing beautifully, that bigger picture includes a whole bunch of stuff that the left brain doesn't have access to because it falls into that category of unseen or unmeasured or unmeasurable in in terms of it's not just data, right? It's not just facts and figures. Um, And so another way to, to think about this, and this is often how 
I describe this when I'm, for example, working with astrology clients, many of whom are in similar positions to the folks that you work with. They're leaders within the policy sphere who um, are, are trying to figure out how um, how to, to live in alignment with their values and and how to um, you know get more out of life than than just um, you know accomplishing one work thing after the next. Um, it's I often will talk with folks about the difference between being in your head and being in your heart. And again, that's a massive oversimplification, but it, it's another framework that folks might be able to understand and resonate with if they haven't thought a ton about intuition or maybe if they've dismissed it as just woo stuff, right? So those are two frameworks that I will offer up. How, how does that land with you? Do you do you think about head and heart, left left brain, right brain? Does does that match with some of your understanding of intuition as well? Absolutely. And and as you mentioned, like it, I think it's easy to kind of oversimplify because there's there there's no way to like cut off right like just from one side of your brain to go to the other or or like just you know operating from your heart space versus your head but it absolutely what what it made me think of is how my entire life i've been very much like the creative intuitive um emotional like that has been my experience i i absolutely have this um tendency to to move through life prioritizing the wisdom of my heart over my head and there's a lot of trauma <laughs> of like kind of getting beaten down into like no you need to be thinking about it this way and that, which is why i you know went to undergrad for accounting like what the heck like that is so far from who i am and and my my you know strengths and and so what i what i also want to say is like if if this is something that you're like, you know, I, I want to access this and yet uh, it feels really hard. Can we all just kind of take a collective breath and say, okay, this world has conditioned us to prioritize the left brain, to prioritize the head thinking over the heart thinking. There's also the gut thinking too. Um, and, and so there's like, I think that we can, kind of let ourselves off the hook a little bit about how difficult it might feel to, to begin to transition into a place that is more intuitive because uh, I'm, I'm guessing that many of the listeners that are listening right now are like, I want that so bad, but it's so hard. It feels hard for me to get out of my thinking brain and, and to get into my heart space and make decisions from that place. And even if I wanted to make that decision, like, how do I find the words? How do I, how do I act and like, let yourself off the hook a little bit, because this is the world that we live in. And we've been conditioned to be in a place like this. And yes, absolutely. Like this is, this is kind of our charge. This is, this is why I do the work that I do. This is, you know, and, and what I will also say is I work with a lot of leaders too, once they unlock that part, and these are people like engineering executives, right? Like people who have built a career on like being in their head and thinking with their left brain. And what I have observed in, in supporting them is once they kind of unlock their ability to tap into their intuition in the ways that they were always meant to, then it just makes their, and I just got goosebumps saying that, like it makes the work that they do with their left brain, with their thinking brain, like it's just so much more expansive. And then they become these, like, like, I don't know, like it just, it it's like so much more than they ever thought they could accomplish or, or the, the systems that they're creating are so expansive and strategic and still very like, they're, they're still really, really wonderful at, at the things that they were always doing, but now they have this, like this, this lens that they're doing it from that is so much more 
encompassing of, of the work that they're meant to do, if that makes sense. So it makes, it makes total yeah. sense. And cause, cause some of what you're talking about, right. Is it's, it's not about saying, all right, I'm throwing away my left brain. I'm never going right. to use that again. I'm only going to use my right brain or I'm only going to use my heart or my gut, not my head. It's the fusion, right? It's about how can these, right. how can these things work together so that each of them is doing what they do best as opposed to trying to do everything through the left brain, which is at this point in Western human history, pretty much how, as you've been describing, we've been conditioned to think we're supposed to live. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I also resonate deeply with what you were saying in terms of it can be hard sometimes to find the words for saying a thing you know when you know you know it and also it, you don't have like the email to point to or the, um, the you know, the pie chart or whatever that, that you can present. And so sometimes, you know, people at work um, might be familiar with hearing me say that my spidey sense is telling me. That's a, that's a phrase I often use or I'll say I have a hunch, right? Or I have a feeling. I feel these are all, they're all languaging, right? For, for what you're, what you're describing. But, um, but Leilani, I, I also, um, as we have this conversation about intuition, um, I want to connect it explicitly back to like, why are we talking about intuition in a conversation about self-care, um, which might not be super self-evident to folks who are listening, especially for people who might be a little more skeptical, a little more the, no, it's only true if, if science tells me it's, it's true. And, and of course that's modern science, right? We have science from prior eras of, of human history that included um, uh, things that our current scientific method would not necessarily um, uh, validate. But um, talk to me a little bit about what intuition has to do with self-care. And, and, and some of that comes from your experience yourself. Some of that comes from some of the work you do with, with, um, with leaders and, and creatives. What are some, I mean, you were starting to describe, like, what are some of the benefits that you can gain in terms of, like, increased creativity or more expansive thinking, right? But, but when it comes to self-care, what's the connection? Why? What's your case uh, to someone who's listening and and going, okay? But what is what is like listening to my intuition or tuning in to my intuition have to do with with self-care? Oh man, <laughs> I'm gonna just start every response with, oh man, what a great question. Um, so intuitively, this is kind of I'm I'm going into my own story because this is what's coming through as, as I'm hearing you ask the question is I spent a lot, many, many, many years ignoring my intuition when I knew that my life was out of alignment. So when I say alignment, I mean spiritual alignment, emotional alignment. I I come from um a family where you kind of grit your teeth and and you move forward like very um downplaying the ways that like our intuition. And for me, it was like my emotional experience, really downplaying the the impact that that has on, on, on us. And so I kind of mentioned, I struggle with anxiety and depression. It was the worst that it had gotten in my life uh, in 2020, right before my intuition really, really blew up. And, and I was like hearing messages, I would be like coaching executives and their mother who passed away 10 years ago would come forward with a message for them. And uh, it was, it was kind of wild the way that it was manifesting and, and not coincidentally, I'm sure that this was the time in my life where I was heavily medicated for my anxiety and depression. I, you know, my son was two and a half at the time, and I was really struggling with my role as a mother, with my role as uh, a wife. I was married to a man at the time. And I, I just knew, um, I knew, I knew that I was, I was not in a good place. I knew that this was not how I'm supposed to feel. So, or maybe the better wording is like, this is not how I'm meant to feel. Right. And so 
I like the way that when my intuition really started speaking to me, it was like, begin to notice the the places where I'm quick to become really irritable or frustrated because that was the way that my anxiety and depression showed up. And so in terms of like self-care and my intuition, so at first it was like listening to my body, noticing the, the cues that I was getting, like, I am more depressed and anxious than I've ever been in my life. And here are the circumstances that are surrounding me. I'm in a job that is as much as I loved my leaders, the, the organization itself was very like taking everything from me. Um, I just, I felt like an empty shell and I was in a marriage where I, I was married to a lovely, lovely man who was not for me. Right. And so for me, my intuition kind of showed up first with my emotions, like really listening to my body and seeing that like, this is not how I'm meant to live. And then my intuition really began just like talking to me, like my higher self, however people identify, like, but my inner knowing was telling me it's time to, to begin to change things. Like it's time, it's time, it's time. And it told me that for months and I didn't exactly know what that meant. Um, I, but, but over, you know, the next six months, I allowed myself to just be led. Like I allowed myself to surrender to just noticing the signs, noticing, you know, where I was feeling energy versus where I wasn't feeling energy, where I was feeling energized versus not feeling energized, like where my creativity was leading me. Um, and it led to, you know, toward the end of 2020, I had quit my corporate job. I had uh, separated from my husband and I, I started walking a path that was completely led by my intuition. And I don't know if I could pinpoint a single time in my life other than that time where I was more focused on self-care than listening to my intuition to leave structures that I had put in place. Like I, I am not a victim. Like I had fully consented <laughs> to the ways that this misalignment was contributing to my suffering and self-care to me looked like listening to every single cue that my body had been trying to tell me for years, listening to my intuition that was telling me it's time to get into alignment. Uh, and, um, that, I mean, in terms of just taking care of myself, like that was, that is what happened. And then, you know, fast forward three years and I am in a place where I, I can no longer be <laughs> in places where I feel like I'm not taking care of myself, whether that's a relationship, whether that is a work opportunity, I turn work down all the time when I don't feel like an organization is aligned with the ways that my intuition is leading me. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the anecdote that comes forward. It's very similar to a lot of the executives and co and, and leaders that I've coached and um, spiritually guided over the years of, you know, really tuning into intuition and, and what it means to be aware of our physical sensations, our emotions, and allowing that to be the place from which we begin to do the hard work of actually getting our life into alignment. Oh, I and, love that. Yeah. I love that. And I love, I appreciate so much you sharing such a, a personal, um, so many personal stories in, in this, in this conversation. Part of what was coming up for me as you were um, recounting that um, was we, the, the past um, couple of episodes that we've had of this, of this podcast, this, this self-care journey that Off Kilter has been on um, and that, that I have been on, which is why it's coming through the podcast. Um, we, we had an episode um, called Finding the Technique That's Relevant for You with my dear friend and colleague, Alex Lawson, um, talking about figuring out like what it looks like to 
show up as yourself in this work as opposed to the way that other people might tell you or have conditioned you to think that you're supposed to be to be one of the professionals or the leaders in, in say, public policy spaces or economic justice spaces. Um, and then last week, we talked um, with Emily Ladau and Alex Ashley Fox about um, the phenomenon of autistic masking and and then the broader implications um, uh, outside of just people who identify on on the um, the autism spectrum, right? All of, I feel like it's so much of it, there's been kind of a through line through these conversations that you're really kind of bringing forward now of like, what does it look like to, instead of leading your life by comparing yourself to everyone around you and saying, I should be like those people, I should be like that person. It's like, what do I feel in my heart is right for me? And then and trusting that that is who you are meant to show up as, as opposed to the, oh, well, I'm supposed to do these things that other people do. And, and if I, if I'm not doing it just like them, then I'm, then I'm failing. There's a quote that um, uh, came up for me when I was prepping for this episode that I, I want to bring in because it really speaks to what I was just invoking. Um, and it comes from a, um, a spiritual teacher um, from the, um, the 20th century um, named J. Krishnamurti. And um, I, I personally d- uh, came across this quote in um, a, a, a book on numerology when I was learning that some time ago. Um, uh, it's, a, it's kind of the classic on numerology by a guy named Dan Millman. It, the book is called The Life You Were Born to Live. For anyone who's ever been curious about numerology, it's great. Um, there's a ton more in there than you would think. But the quote is, we are raised on comparison. Our education is based on it. So is our culture. So we struggle to be someone other than we are. And I, I wanted to bring that in because just like, why is intuition relevant to a conversation about self-care? Well, it's because when you're when you're trapped in your head, and I say this from my own personal experience as well, just to bring that in to sandwich what you were just offering, right? When you live solely based in your head, and then you're 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 comparing yourself to other people is what you're doing. And it it takes getting in touch with the heart, getting in touch with the intuition to realize when that life that you have built is not in alignment as you were describing. So I don't know if you have any reactions to that quote, but I know we're going to we're gonna run out of time in a couple of minutes. So I want to throw you one last question to close with, which is um, for anyone who's listening to this and going, okay, you got me. I'm interested. <laughs> I want to explore intuition. Um, and maybe folks already have been, and maybe maybe um, some listeners are going, yeah, this is something I've been, I've been playing with, but I'm looking for a little more um, in the way of tools or tips um, or life hacks, um, what are some ways that you might recommend that folks can get in touch with their intuition if that's not already a consistent practice for them? Um, do you have any any specific tips? I mean, obviously meditation is a big one and folks are probably already thinking about that. I often recommend tarot to people even if they're not super woo. Um, what, what tips do you have as we close out this amazing conversation um, for folks who are looking to um, explore more? Yeah. I mean, there, there are so many ways the what's coming to mind is, is get a spiritual mentor, get a spiritual guide. Um, if, if you're really serious about kind of breaking through some of these ways that, that we've been conditioned and prioritizing the thinking mind and all of that, um, the best way to do it is to, work with somebody who can support you in that. I'm, I'm so grateful that the universe has kind of like plopped really powerful spiritual mentors on my path. Um, but that would be like something to consider. So whether it's like a Reiki master or, or, I mean, there are even people who support others and, um, fine tuning into it, intuitive gifts. I, I also work one-on-one with folks, but that, that would be, that's kind of the first thing that's coming through is like, 
what would it look like for you to begin to invest in your intuitive, um, just understanding of yourself and, and your path and how to move forward through that. And I mean, just kind of a shameless plug. Like I have a podcast that I know that a lot of people have felt supported by in terms of like connecting with their intuitive gifts. So the intuitive catalyst is my podcast. And I know I I've been doing more solo episodes to support people and really understanding how to connect with their intuition. So there's that. Um, and then I guess I'm just like shamelessly plugging myself. Cause I also offer workshops for people to, to get more attuned to their intuition as well. And I'll be sure to like include all of that, um, in, in my bio and everything. But I, I just think at the end of the day, we, I think we think we have to do it alone and, and that's beautiful. And, and there, there's a really important place that solitude has in, in our work and stillness. So like meditating, going out into the woods and just kind of wandering, I mean, don't, don't get lost, but you know what I mean? Like there's, there's so much of like, there's so much richness in solitude, but, but the messages that I've been receiving a lot lately from the unseen is that we've been trying to do it alone. And that can only bring us so far. Our healing has to be in relationship. It has to be in the collective. So how are you connecting with mentors, with community? What are you doing to begin to fine tune your own circle of your inner circle? Because the people that you share time with are also a reflection of like, how you are moving through this, this part of, of your journey as well. I've, I've had to like, kind of say goodbye to people who are not in alignment with my spiritual journey and my, my intuition development. And so, um, that's the message that's coming through me, but I'm sure you have more to add. Rebecca. Oh, I, I love it. And I wish we had another hour because we, there's so much we could spend on, um, just talking about intuition and, and, um, how it, it can show up as a, a self-care practice, but, um, no, that's great. We'll have links to all of your great resources in our show notes for folks who want to connect with you. Um, and I'll, I'll just put in a plug for folks who are on the fence and they're, they're saying, I don't know that I'm ready to invest. I'm not sure that I'm ready to spend much time on this, but you know, little, little things like not being scheduled up all day, right. Actually having time where you get still and that can be meditation. It doesn't have to be anything quite as meditation can sound scary to folks. It can be like, oh, I don't know how to meditate or, oh, I can't keep my thoughts from happening. Just being still and being quiet and not being productive all day, every day and not being scheduled up. And, you know, my God, it's sometimes 15 minute increments in, in, in the work world today. I mean, even just that building in like a little tiny block of time every day, or even a few times a week, just to get still can be a really good first step. And then I said it before, but I, I recommend it all the time especially to folks who don't identify as woo or magical types, but who are looking for tangible practices and tools to help them escape from what I call left brain tyranny, tarot. Check out tarot, get yourself a deck. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. I, I, I love nothing more than talking to people about how to read tarot and use it as an intuitive practice, but it can it can be a mirror for your intuitive mind for, for folks who aren't necessarily ready to just listen to what's going on and, and, and who maybe aren't yet at a place of saying they want to trust. And so because it offers you something to look at, which is cards that are represent archetypes that are the universal archetypes of life, um, it can be a really helpful tool. And it's thing I often recommend to lawyers and um, professionals and others who are deeply skeptical of the woo and, and um, the number of folks at this point who are now reading tarot and using it as their intuitive tool because I sort of shared it on the side is more than I can I can count. So um, don't write it off um, just because you are not a, a super woo person. Um, Leilani, I have so enjoyed this conversation. 
this has been so fun for me. Um, I wish we had more time, but um, I just want to close with a lot of gratitude to you for um, taking the time and for um, for sharing as much of yourself as you did with this um, with this episode. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Rebecca, it's been an honor and I'm just so grateful for the work that you do. So thank you. And that does it for this week's show. Off Kilter is powered by the Century Foundation and produced by We Act Radio, with a special shout out to executive producer Troy Miller and his merry band of farm animals, and the indefatigable Abby Grimshaw. Transcripts, which help us make the show accessible, are courtesy of Cheryl Green and her fabulous feline co-worker. Find us every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. And if you like what we do here at Off Kilter Enterprises, send us some love by hitting that subscribe button and rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts to help other folks find the pod. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.